Good morning and welcome back to church. Have a seat if you haven't already and we'll get started here. I'm very pleased to announce this morning we've been doing this for several months now. A volunteer of the month to share with you that our February volunteer of the month is Angela Gerlach. And she's here with us. So let me tell you a little bit about this gal. Angela has been a part of a church family since the beginning, really. Close to it. Yeah, within a year, probably, of when we started in 2009. Um, she has been actively serving in many areas. She's a faithful teacher in Pebble Zone, bringing warmth and cheer and uh, fun to the kids downstairs in the lower level, teaching them valuable lessons about God's love. She's on our courtesy crew, meaning she greets you at the door with a kind smile. She's been the Welcome Center lead team member twice now. This is her second stint at that. Uh, she's got the heart to sign up to bring people meals when they have babies. She's done that, um, gosh, I'd say 75, 80, 90% of the meals that we post for people who've had a baby, Angela signs up to bring a tasty meal. She blesses so many families in their time of need. She's also pioneered our backyard barbecues, summer's farmer's market, and she's babysat for a number of our church families. She's also um, unaffiliated with the church, a first responder for the village of Stratford, and has used this area of expertise to uh, create a safe environment here at the mill, including re recommending that we get a defibrillator, right? Which we have hanging on the wall back there. So uh, just appreciate her all the way around. Uh, if you hear a beeper go off in the middle of the service and hear footsteps at a rapid pace exiting, you'll know it's Angela responding to a call. But we're just so grateful to have you, Angela, in our church family. So give Angela a round of applause as our February Volunteer of the Month. Awesome. If you want to stay for our uh, second service, you might get a bigger round of applause, Angela. I mean, although the six of you did well. You know, it was robust. We're uh, glad you're here today again. Uh, we watched our El Salvador team um, take off yesterday. What a great group went. We trust that they have an amazing week. They've arrived safely. They're already prescribing meds and doing construction and teaching the Bible. So I look forward to hearing their report. Uh, last week, I mentioned to you that in Esther chapter 9, there are a number of reversals that take place. And we're nearing the end of this fabulous story. Uh, the first reversal was this, which we talked about at length. You don't have to die with your family. You don't have to die with your family. Uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the what? tree, some have said, um, and such was the case with the sons of Haman, this godless man uh, and figure in this book. He didn't repent of his ways. He didn't tell his sons to, to turn to God for their own salvation, so the apple didn't fall far. They died in the same manner that he did, um, and it doesn't have to, however, be that way. 
God is in the business, I told you last week, of taking apples beneath trees and chucking them so that they'll fall on fertile soil, so that seeds will sprout, so the tree will grow um, and become the end of an, an ongoing bad reproductive cycle and the start of something fresh and new and clean. How many of you, by the way, would say you're a first-generation Christian in your family? Would anybody say that? I'm just curious. A few hands here, three or four, five. That's wonderful. Praise God. God took your apple and he chucked it, didn't he? He gave you a new start. Praise God. Praise God. So you may come from a litany of familial dysfunction. Um, You don't have to die with your family. You can turn to Jesus for salvation. He can in every way change your stars. And this morning I want to talk to you about another reversal. You don't have to have all of your questions answered. You don't have to have all of your questions answered. If you're just kind of flirting with the mill church, if you're just kind of flirting with salvation, with Jesus, this is a great place um, to be. I'm going to read you a controversial text this morning. It's a divisive part of the Bible. It's not agreed upon by theologians. Um, It turns kind of dark. This is like King Xerxes' version of the Hunger Games that we're going to read this morning. Um, So here we go, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9. That very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done? In the rest of the king's provinces. Now what is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And then Esther the queen replied. If it pleases the king. Notice how respectful she is yet again. If it pleases the king. Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman, are they already dead, by the way? They are. They are. We just read that. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. And a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also, on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Um, What on earth is happening here? You uh, may be new. Um, I think most of you have been around for most of this series, but Haman, um, every time I recap, I recap less and less because we have to, But Haman, this godless man, second in power to King Xerxes, wanted to eradicate all Jews. So he issued an edict to do so, to kill all of them. The nature of his heart is discovered. And so Mordecai, who replaces him as kind of the vice president of this nation, then issues another decree. Couldn't reverse the initial one. Had to do an additional one. And, and, And Esther... The adoptive daughter of Mordecai, also his, his first cousin, um, is, is there. 
And, and so, and she replies to the king today when he asks her, what else can be done? What else can I do for you, Queen Esther? So, um, I'm going to leave this uh, for you to look at um, on the way home today in your minivan with your family and fight over your own interpretation. I'm going to, instead of giving you an interpretation, give you a couple options, okay? And I want the giving of options in interpretation to further highlight and underscore the idea that we're not going to have all of our questions answered in this life, including our biblical questions, okay? So if you come today for concrete objectivity, you're not going to get it. You're going to be left with, uh, with some questions. And the point is that that's all right. So the godless man makes an edict on this day. We can kill God's people, God's men, God's women, God's children. We're going to plunder all their goods. In chapter 8, Mordecai replaces Haman, gets the entire state, gets the king's signet ring, and Mordecai issues another decree that allows the Jews to defend themselves. You remember this. So Queen Esther, who, again, is Mordecai's first cousin, steps forward and asks for two things. Number one, when the king prompts her, she says... We killed a lot of people. We'd like an additional day to kill more people. That's what she says. Second, she says, Haman's ten sons are dead, but I'd like to make a statement, and I'd like to hoist their bodies up publicly. This isn't like the Wild West where there's a trap door and a rope around the neck. This is um, more along the lines of, of a big shish kebab. This was a pole up in the air, 75 feet, and a a body was impaled on on top of it. This was the predecessor to the Romans' crucifix. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans augmented it and, and some would say perfected it in the form of a cross, but it didn't always have the crossbar. It started as a vertical pole. And the point in this case isn't to inflict pain because the ten sons are already dead. The point was to send a message. Don't believe what the ten sons believe. This is what Esther's getting at. Don't behave as though uh, they behaved. This um, is, is akin, by the way, of putting uh, somebody in orange jumpsuit and beheading them on YouTube. It was absolutely intended to cause fear. It was intended to cause anxiety and panic. It was intended to say, don't do this or this will happen to you. That's what Esther meant by it. It was in every way a warning sign. And this was ordered by the otherwise dignified queen. Esther, kind of dark, isn't it? The way the text turns this morning. They didn't tell me this part of the story when I was in Sunday school. When we were putting uh, little Esther's on the flannel graph in her tiara, okay? They didn't talk to us about, there, there was no pole on the flannel graph, right? Didn't come included in the kit. So um, here we are. Um, and, and she kind of presents this idea as if it's a, if, if it's, if, as if it's a Groupon, right? 
You kill one day, you get the next day free. <laughs> so how this go? This is just wild what we're seeing here in the text. So our question becomes, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Is this request of Esther's holy or is it unholy? And commentators are, are relatively evenly divided. So what I'm going to do this morning again is give you two perspectives, not one perspective. I hope you would appreciate us embracing the subjectivity of this event and not uh, obliging or rather uh, obligating me to be a, a judge. So, perspective number one. Esther did a holy, good, and right thing. Proponents of this interpretation would say that all the way back in the Old Testament, the Agagites were enemies of the people of God. Here's what God said, in fact, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. You shall blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. Not just the Amalekites, but also the memory of the Amalekites. And these are, by the way, the ancestors to the Agagites. Okay? So God said, not only get rid of them, but get them out of your head. In the book of Exodus, God's people are being liberated, freed. The Agagites come to attack them and destroy them. And then about a thousand years later, we see this conflict still happening uh, with Haman leading the charge. So the war between Mordecai and Haman is actually a thousand years old. A people group empowered by Satan intends to destroy God's people, the church. Okay? About halfway into the war, 500 years before Mordecai, there's a king named Saul, I've shared this with you, who in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God said to him, kill all, not some, all of the Agagites. Destroy them. Um, you can't both live, Israelites and Agagites. They need to, to see their demise. And then secondly, don't plunder their goods. This isn't about greed. Don't let money motivate you. Um, what happens? What does King Saul do? Not only does he let the leader of the Agagites live, but he took the money. He was supposed to rid the world of Agagites and leave the money alone. He let an Agagite live and he took the money. So the Agagites should not, in Esther's day, have even existed. But here Haman stands. So those who say that what Esther did was godly and holy and, and right, they, they say all she was doing was doing what God told King Saul to do. 500 years later, Saul disobeyed, Esther obeyed, okay? The other view, the other view is that what Queen Esther did was entirely ungodly. These commentators would argue that the first day was about self-defense, but the second day was a request to murder, to chase down, to annihilate people that were no longer a threat. It wasn't about self-defense anymore. First day holy, second day unholy. And further, they would say, of course, that displaying the bodies 
high in the air was taking this too far. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? You're certainly welcome to form an opinion. The scriptures do not, however, give us an indication. We don't read, and God wept. You know, we we don't see anything like that. We don't see, and the angels rejoiced after the second day. We have none of that. So, the Bible is silent. Not only is the Bible silent, but Esther is not even mentioned outside of the book of Esther. Nowhere else in the Bible. So we have nowhere where the Bible is talking about the story of Esther. Um, As you may know, the Bible is not really a a book as much as it is a collection or a library of books. Esther being one of, of 66. So no other book mentions the story of Esther. Oftentimes we can cross reference in the Bible and read about some stories elsewhere, not the case with with this one. You may say, Pastor, I can't handle your ambiguity. Make an opinion. Give it. Make a judgment, right? For crying out loud, tell us the answer. Um, And I would respond by saying this. I, I think it's tragic and unfortunate when the church feels that it needs to come up with conclusions that God doesn't come to in the Bible. I think it's good and right to maintain a reticence to add to what is already here. Sometimes parts of the Bible are hard to understand. Would anybody just agree with that? I've read it. Like there's parts of it that just are tough. Um, The Bible, we do know, is God-breathed. It says this about itself, is God-breathed and is useful. It's God-breathed, inspired by God. It's useful or profitable. Um, That is to say, if God wrote a book, it's very important that we study it including Esther, that we study all of it. The Bible is equally inspired all the way through. It's God's words, but it's not equally clear all the way through. Does that make sense? Equally inspired, just as much God's words all the way through, but it's not equally clear all the way through. Sometimes we don't know what to do with the Bible. Today is one of those days. Let me just address this ambiguity that we see in today's text specifically with some thoughts about the Bible generally. That's where I want to go for the rest of our time together because I think it's important to have a good perspective on the Bible. Um, In other words, my hope is that we don't let fundamentalism and legalism creep into how we see the scriptures in such a way that we feel forced to speak when the Bible is is mum. We ought not do that. Um, In other words, when a text is foggy, that doesn't need to jar our confidence in the scriptures. It's okay that the text be foggy. It does not mean that God is foggy. It does not mean that God 
knows less than everything. It simply means that we know less than everything. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's some principles as it comes to generally some ambiguity in the scriptures that I hope may help you this morning and give you confidence in the Bible as a whole. First, all scripture, again, is equally inspired. First Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. In other, in other words, just like God breathed life into Adam, God breathes life into his word. It's a living organism. It's a sword, the Bible describes itself as, dividing uh, marrow, getting down to our inmost being, convicting the heart, okay? So all scripture is equally inspired, not all of it's equally clear. Some parts are harder to understand. Simon Peter does tell us this. Second um, Peter 3 verse 16 says this, there are some things in them, in the scriptures, and particularly he's referring to the writings of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter's saying this, it's a slippery slope to be as emphatic about your interpretation as you are about what the Bible says. Can I say that again? It's a slippery slope to be as emphatic about your interpretation of the Bible as you are to be emphatic about what it actually says. How many of you know there's a lot of people and a lot of pastors who are emphatic about interpretations of the Bible? That's dangerous ground. I'm not saying, by the way, that you can disagree with what the Bible concretely says. That's not what I'm saying. That's a slippery slope in its own right. If you do that, you have a hardened heart, not a questioning mind. Okay? What the Bible says clearly, we obey clearly. Amen? Amen. So, second, the Bible is quite clear, quite clear, thank goodness, on matters of first importance. Absolutely is. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says this, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What Paul's saying is, let me tell you what's most important. Here's what's most important. Another way to put that is, Paul is saying not everything is on the same level of importance. That's what he's saying. How many Agagites died may be important to historians and some pastors, but it's not as important as whether or not Jesus is alive today. Amen? That's important. I mean, that's of primary importance. Um, did Jesus die for my sin? Primary question or secondary question? Primary, man. I mean, you got to know the answer to that question. That's important. Did he or didn't he? Um, do you speak in tongues or not? Primary or secondary? That's a secondary question. 
What about do you homeschool your children? Do you vaccinate? Acoustic guitar versus electric guitar. (laughs) Greg, I'm going to kick you out of here. Important, yes, but not as important. Okay, not as important. Another important principle, a third principle. The Bible tells us all we need to know. but not all we want to know. All we need to know, but not all we want to know. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that we don't know everything? Here's something I want you to put stock in. We don't trust in what we know. We trust in the one who knows it all. That's where our trust goes. We are not God. He is God. That's why we trust in him. A fourth principle. God has the right and maintains it to have and to keep secrets. He does. He does not disclose everything to his children. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. There it is. God has secrets. Romans 11 asks the question, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's known it? Now, you got to know when Paul asks that question, he's not expecting the student in the back of the class to raise his hand and go, Ooh, I do. I do. I know the mind of the Lord. I do. The question is what? It's rhetorical, right? It, it was not intended that it be answered. Okay, instead, we say, he does, he does, God does, God knows the answers to all the questions. Hallelujah! He knows them all. The fifth principle that we can concretely lean into in the middle of all the subjectivity of the Bible is that God's thoughts and his ways are higher than than our thoughts and our ways. The scripture says that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than than your thoughts. How many of you have ever seen something from from a higher elevation and gained a new perspective? A truer perspective. Someday I hope I can get in a biplane and pedal around Wausau for a couple hours. Because I've been in central Wisconsin for 13 years and I still 
have have yet to figure out that. <laughs> almost said stupid. It's not stupid. But the way it's laid out is stupid. I can't get from here to there, darn it. When we're high, we get a new perspective. We see it clearly. What God is saying is, is that he's high and he's exalted. And when he looks down at history and when he looks down at our circumstances, he does so with a clear perspective. He sees more than we see. He sees how it all fits together in ways that we don't see. A sixth principle in how to objectively lean into God in the middle of subjectivity is this. We, and I'll put this in quotes, we know in part. We know in part. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says so. Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror. Anybody know the next word? Dimly. Dimly. Um, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows it all. We don't know it all. Paul's saying we live in a fallen world. We have a fallen brain. We are finite creatures. We have furthermore a sinful nature. Our hearts are reluctant to obey God. And we see dimly. We don't see it all. It says if we're in a car and I've done this and it it goes great until you're facing the east. I've tried to drive to work without clearing the frost off my windshield in the mornings. Wise or dumb? That's dumb. And you realize it the moment you turn right, right? But that's how we see. It's as if we're trying to drive with the frost on our windshield. Paul says when Jesus comes back, it's then that we're going to see him face to face, that he's going to open our eyes and we're going to see as he sees. And somebody needs to hear this. You will see in that moment that Jesus did the right thing. Whatever thing means to you. Whatever has kept you from placing your full trust in Jesus because of that, that thing. You'll see that Jesus did the right thing. Last one. The Bible is the most honest book that has ever been written. The most honest book that has ever, ever been written. Just think about this for a minute. One of the ways we know God inspired the Bible is how incredibly honest the book is. If you were to 
want God to be elevated and adored? Would you have, in the moment of, of David, the pinnacle of his career, would you have recorded historically what happened with Bathsheba? Would you have, would you have penned that? Would you have included that report? That incident? I, I probably wouldn't have put it in there that 10 young guys were crucified in their front yard in front of their, their own mother. I would have found a different way to tell that. The Bible is honest. When you think about it, nearly everybody, think about this, everybody in the Bible looks bad except for Jesus Christ. There's only one hero in the whole thing. Don't struggle with that. Don't try to reinterpret the data. Don't try to make Esther or David or Paul out to be anybody that they aren't to justify your position that God is good. The point is that we're all not good. That he's the only hero in the book. That we need him. That we need a savior. That's why he came. So let the flaws of people in the Bible remind us that God is perfect. Not cause us to become defensive. Well, Queen Esther was really leading Bible studies in the Harlem. Where does this leave us with Esther and her Groupon? Maybe she was right. Maybe she was wrong. Are you grateful that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks? Amen? She's a crooked stick. You and I are crooked sticks. Some of us more crooked than others, for sure. And with us, God accomplishes his purpose. He chooses to use us. He draws people to himself. He sends missionaries. He plants churches, people in communities to share the gospel with those who haven't heard. An imperfect Esther doesn't give us despair. It gives us hope. You say, I'm not perfect. Welcome to the club. Neither was Esther or Mordecai or David or Solomon or Peter or Paul. It's, it's all in the book because the book is honest. And it encourages us to be honest. Here I am. Here's my sin. Here's the sins of my family. Here's the sins of my people. God, let me be honest. How many of you have ever made decisions in life? You know, is the Bible subject, subjective in places? Yes, it is. How many of you would say that just life involves subjective decision making? 
I just talked about this in a group full of church planters uh, last weekend. Life is not always full of objective right or wrong decisions. It's tough sometimes. And sometimes we can use the Bible to justify either position. We can text proof and, and grab and cherry pick a verse that makes us sound like we're right in the decision that we're making, even if our motives are sinful and impure. I made a decision several weeks ago, and I was not in a great place. Um, the Bible says God is slow to anger. I wish that could be said of me all the time. I did feel like it was kind of a righteous anger that I had in confronting someone that I felt like was dishonest with me and, and wasn't leveling and wasn't upholding their end of an agreement. And I kept, kind of let them have it. And to this day, I, I have prayed, I have talk to others, I'm still trying to figure out um, if I had the right motive in that conversation. Was I godly or was I un ungodly? At what point in my emphasis and in my tone, if I became ungodly, at what point was that in the conversation? Last week I had, the week before last, yet another conversation with somebody that, that I, I, I felt like I was, I was standing up for a right and consistent decision, a wise way to, to uh, equally treat people without favoritism. But I look back at it and think, you know, to be honest, my tone was sinful. There was some pride there. I kind of liked that I was right a little too much. Here's the truth. We don't need to have all of our questions answered in the Bible to faithfully walk with God. So if that's a hindrance to you, just open it up and get started. Treasures, gems await you. Sweet times with Jesus. You don't even have to have all of your motives questioned and fully understood to have a walk with God. This side of eternity, we will not see everything clearly. We just won't. We will not have the right answers to many facets of our lives. But, but, we have hope that a perfect God works through imperfect people and that we can lean into we don't need to rewrite our story so that villains look like heroes because we're all villains and he's the only hero it's actually comforting when you think about it we depend on him he will reverse the damage done he will bring everything to work together for what? For good.
in spite of us. Glory be to God. Amen. So, Father, forgive us this morning. Cleanse us of our sin. Lord, help us to, when it's clear, repent and ask for forgiveness. God, when it's unclear, help us to understand that much of life is subjective. It's a sticky wicket. Let that never become an excuse for bad behavior. But let us understand that we see through a dim windshield. And we'll see it all when we get to heaven. We'll see it all when our perspective is elevated. Until then, Lord, we say we're sorry for the wrong we've done and the good we haven't done. And we ask you for your help. And we ask you for your companionship. And we delight in your word. And in what we understand of your nature. And what we don't, Lord, we we study and, and, and we look to, to gain understanding, but we don't let what keeps us from your word pro- prohibit us from, from enjoying it for years to come. Lord, just let us resign to the fact that we will never understand fully, but let us enjoy the beauty of what you've revealed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.